and my name is Aluba Felix, and this is the latest edition of my podcast, where I interview people that really inspire me to consistently and persistently pursue my potential. Um, today's interview is a, a very special one, and it's also touching on a topic that's very close to my own heart. In fact, it's a topic that really breaks my heart, uh, because um, in 2021, we're still faced on this planet with a massive issue with slavery. Uh, if we look at modern-day slavery as an industry, we're talking about an industry that's worth about $150 billion per year on a global basis. And it's estimated that between 46 to 65 million people globally are actually held in situations of slavery. Um, so it's shocking to think, you know, that this is still such an issue across the world today. Um, Luckily, there are many on the front lines who are doing everything they can to tackle this issue. One of those organizations is an organization called Unseen, based here in the UK. Uh, they have an aspiration to create a world without slavery. Uh, and I've had the pleasure of uh, doing some work with Unseen over the last number of years. And in particular, with the manager of the Modern Slavery Helpline, Rachel Harper, who is joining me here today to talk about uh, the recent report that's been released looking at the data that has come from the helpline and how that's being used, as I said, to influence uh, some changes um, at a policy level within government and, and give a greater understanding to people as to what exactly is the situation on the ground, particularly here in the UK. Uh, so first and foremost, Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Lovely to see you again. Um, Rachel, just to get started, can you kind of give a little people a bit of flavor of your backstory you know when, when did you first get involved with unseen and, and what specifically um you know are you doing as manager of the modern slavery helpline sure um i became involved with unseen um in 2016 really just before the helpline launched came over specifically to work on this project thought it would be a very exciting and needed effort um across the uk to really make sure that access to services were available um, to everybody across the population and that we could increase awareness around this. Um, prior to that, I had become interested in, in modern slavery. To be honest, it just gripped hold of me. I couldn't ignore it once I realized, just as you mentioned with those astonishing numbers for 2021, how rampant it is globally. And I felt like it was just the most egregious human, I felt like all the human rights abuses kind of rolled up into one. If you were to endure this, to face sexual abuse, physical abuse, lack of control, lack of autonomy, um, lack of movement, and, and just thinking about what that would be like for a survivor. Um, I was appalled, of course, and then to see how prevalent it was and just couldn't tolerate it. Um, so really started focusing on that and then um, in, in the States and then moved to the UK to work with the helpline um, and work with that scene and, and fit with my personal life as well, which was good. Um, and then with the helpline, it's been quite a journey since we launched. Um we, the Helpline provides a range of services. It's a pretty dynamic project, which I like. So first of all, it's 24-7, which brings um, its own operational challenges, but we're really committed to be there at 2 a.m. when somebody needs us. And it's confidential, um, so we consider ourselves victim-centered. So if an individual um, doesn't want to tell us who they are or someone wants to remain anonymous, that's fine. If they don't want to tell us all the details about their situation, we understand that. There's lots of the impact of trauma on survivors can surface in different ways. So they might not be ready to tell us everything. And, and our team are trained to ask questions and provide that emotional support or provide safety planning if they're in a dangerous situation. 
Um, and we also provide a lot of technical assistance. We get calls from police, from medical professionals, from statutory agencies, local authority officers, um, individuals from job centers, etc. We also get calls from businesses. Um, so lots of individuals wanting to know how they can either help a client or service user or how they can work against this mitigated with their own business and in their own professional life. Um, and then lots of calls from members of the community. Um, we take tip-offs. So um, anytime, we say anytime somebody sees something that they think is, is suspicious or they're worried about it, they can give us a call. Again, it's free for them to call um, and we'll ask those questions. We have translation services available 24-7, which is really important, as we know, because many victims, English is not their first language and we want them to be comfortable when they speak with us. Yeah. Um, so that's a little bit about the helpline and kind of the services we offer um, as far as when individuals call us in, on that case-by-case -case basis. And then I'd also say we do quite a lot of work around the data. Um, we think it's quite important to, to take everyone's stories as they relate them to us on the helpline and what we're learning and seeing, record that carefully, and then feed it back to the sector um, to really better inform our responses um, and make sure that we're really sharing what we're learning. Yeah, fantastic work. And I definitely want to delve into the data and get a little bit of an understanding as to what we're seeing at the moment. Um, but I think it's fair to say that this is an issue that um, kind of affects all genders and all age groups as well. Yes, and I think that's one of the myths, really. And when individuals, to, to me, when they meet me on the street and they hear about modern slavery and human trafficking, I think they have um, a, a movie or very set kind of limited situation in their mind. Um, but that's just, that's a myth. There is no one type of victim. It really does, as you mentioned, range across the demographics. We've seen, um, unfortunately, victims um, reported on the helpline as young as 12 and up into the grandparents. And there's um, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And so the age, the age range is broad. We do see most of our victims around the 25 to 35 range reported, but it, it can be any age. And then um, both genders, for sure, it's not just a situation that affects um, one particular population. And then in 2020, we saw 80 different nationalities reported to us. Um, and that includes UK national, nationals. So I think sometimes people think, excuse me, it's just an issue for perhaps individuals traveling into the UK or foreign nationals, but we're seeing an increase in individuals from um, our own country, particularly British teenagers that are being recruited um, perhaps by gangs into criminal exploitation, which is a, is a real growing concern. Yeah, absolutely. And I was interested to see in the report that there also seems to be a link between the nationality of the exploited and the exploiter. Yes, and that's something that we really began delving into a few years ago, um, starting to really carefully track what what reports tell us about the exploiter, the potential exploiter, um, and doing just that, looking at their nationality and seeing what overlay there is. Um, and somewhat unsurprisingly, we know individuals sometimes, if they are recruited in another country, they might be recruited from within their community. Yeah. And so, yes, we're seeing um, oftentimes the individuals of the same nationality or community are often exploiting individuals within their nationality or community, and which kind of matches their touch points. Um, but it's not always a situation, again, where people might think, oh, well, you're kidnapped by someone you don't know, and then you're forced to work, and it's a very um, kind of disparate situation. Instead, we see quite a lot actually happening in pretty close um, communities. Yeah, so people are getting involved in arrangements based on trust where they're expecting a different type of outcome and then when they arrive on the ground things radically change for them or they find themselves pulled deeper and deeper into these you know dreadful situations yeah definitely and that's what we hear all the time on the helpline that and one of the questions we ask that basically the situation is not what they expected one yeah. of the most common recruitment methods is 
a false job advertisement. Um, and I think that's another myth. I think sometimes um, individuals that aren't as familiar with modern slavery might think, well, I wouldn't be duped into that. And, and surely I would ask for help, kind of not fully understanding the impact of the trauma or just how savvy exploiters are. Um, it can look like a legitimate job and sometimes even be a legitimate job. We're seeing an increase of exploiters actually taking wages off of workers outside of the workplace, um, which also just kind of increases how we want to work with businesses, because it could be that your own own workers are being exploited outside of the workplace. Um, So all to say, it can be difficult to detect before you're in it. And then, yes, once the victim's in it, it's very clear this isn't what they expected. Um, They're not being compensated properly. Um, They don't feel free to leave. And there's some pretty egregious threats or abuse that keep them um, feeling as if they're under control and in a situation where they're being exploited. Yeah, no, it, it's shocking, really. I, I remember um, many years ago when I was living back in Dublin, uh, I had a friend uh, that I knew who had uh, come to Ireland from Zimbabwe uh, to work as a uh, household um, kind of help. Um, it was a legitimate job when she first came over. And very shortly after that, her passport was taken from her. And very shortly after that, she stopped getting paid any yeah. wages. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, her accommodation was was tied to where she was. Her passport was there, and she found herself in a very, very difficult situation. So, but I believe those instances of domestic servitude are one of the highest instances that we see when we look at modern day slavery. Would that be correct? Um, we see it. We see it happening quite a lot in the UK. It's not necessarily one of the highest that we see reported to the helpline. Um, there's a couple of concerns there that just what you described is exactly what we hear about all too often. Um, that their identifications are taken from them. That they're not allowed to leave. Oftentimes. Unfortunately, victims in that situation don't have proper living arrangements. Um, We've had really hard reports from individuals that have been sleeping on the floor sometimes for years. Um, And they just don't have the ability to kind of build relationships in the community. They're quite isolated to report what's happening to them. Um, But we definitely have those calls come into the helpline. And and actually last year, we saw an increase in those calls, which is really interesting given the context of the pandemic. Um, Because how are they, if it is so isolated, how are, are individuals learning about the helpline and then making calls to us? Um, But they are. And actually, of those domestic servitude cases, we had quite a few calls from victims themselves. So it could be we we get calls from community members or neighbors that might be concerned about what's happening in the house next door um, or maybe congregation or or, um, church members that have maybe observed someone they're worried about. Um, But victims themselves in situations of domestic servitude do reach out to us. Um, And it's it's astonishing how prevalent it is in the UK still. Um, Last year, we had 110 cases of domestic servitude reported to us. um, so it's, it's definitely an ongoing problem. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, let, let's delve into the statistics. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear about um, what are the kind of largest areas that we're seeing um, in terms of um, exploitation and also what are the industries that are kind of more closely associated with some of this. Um, so maybe you can kind of unpack some of the data that we're seeing there. Yeah. Sure. Um, so consistently every year, labor exploitation is the biggest piece of the pie for us. Um, but interestingly, of course, with the pandemic in 2020, it was a smaller piece than usual. It was um, 33% of our calls were labor exploitation, but it's still consistently there. Um, and though in labor is kind of where we'd start looking at the different sectors that you might you know see um, out in businesses. Um, so we still see, we still got reports of car washes and nail bars. Um, those are kind of two prevalent locations or, in, or um, businesses that we hear a lot about in the UK. Um, so there's a lot of awareness and, and, and connected that quite a lot of calls. Um, but we saw fewer of those than normal um, than, because I think of the pandemic. But we saw quite a lot of reports in construction. 
and hospitality and agriculture and manufacturing. So those were the top five sectors that we saw um, labor exploitation occurring um, as reported to the helpline. So again, construction, hospitality, agriculture, and manufacturing. Um, and, you, you know, sometimes you've got seasonal workforce um, or um, as a labor shortages, perhaps, um, as different immigration rules change or as a result of the pandemic. Um, but unfortunately, we still got reports of abuse happening across those sectors. Right. Okay. So traditionally, traditionally they've been the strongest with the pandemic. We've seen maybe a drop in some of those areas, but still major issues in 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 all of those areas and the, the industries that you mentioned. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So, so what have we seen with the pandemic? Then, what what have been some of the kind of highlights in terms of the you know the, the change in the nature of the calls to the helpline? Yes. Um, so I think what is interesting that um, while, you know, coinciding with the pandemic, we did have a decrease in calls last year, um, a decrease in modern slavery um, cases slightly. We actually saw an increase in a couple types of exploitation. So, again, that decrease was mainly in our labor area, although it's still quite a lot of our um, portion of our cases. We saw an increase in sexual exploitation reported to us last year and an increase in criminal exploitation, which is interesting um, and an increase in domestic servitude. And, and it's, incre- it's interesting to me um, that all three of those types of exploitation were reported more um, than the prior year, especially given the pandemic. Um, so with sexual exploitation, in, we saw an increase of 25% of cases higher. Um, and then with criminal exploitation, of an increase of 42%. So pretty substantial increases yeah. there. Um, yes. Yeah. So that just, of course, shows us that it's, it's ongoing. It's happening regardless of, you know, the larger context and the changes in our, in our global situation. And it's clearly not dependent on free travel. Because um, yeah. as we saw those travel restrictions and even some borders closed in other countries, um, we still see quite a lot of modern slavery being reported within the UK. Right. Interesting. Interesting. And of course, I would imagine something like sexual exploitation would tend to affect maybe women more so than with men. Would that be correct? Yes, definitely. That is correct. Um, it, it's, it's shocking, actually, how much more. So, um when we look at our data, like as a whole, aggregately, we see um, a little bit more even split against the genders that are reported. So for our demographics, for all text and modern slavery in 2020, um, men or male victims are reported as 36% of the pop- of the victims and females 29%. But when we look at sexual exploitation cases, <clears throat> 91% of those victims are reported to be female. Wow. which is very different, right? If, th- if it's about 30% for all cases, 91% for females, um, are, are, and that's 440 actual females were reported to have been sexually exploited. So it's, it's way higher. And so it, I would say that's an issue of quite a lot of gender concerns there. Um, and then I think it's interesting to see how or those exploitation is happening. Um, and, and there we saw the two most common locations for sexual exploitation were private houses and online. Which is interesting. It's right. uh, yes, and we do record when it happens in a brothel or a pop up brothel. Um, and I think again, this is a myth, right? People might think you're trapped kind of in a traditional brothel setting if you're a victim yeah. of sexual exploitation. But actually, we're seeing more and more um, happening in very well to do residences. Um, yeah. Someone is being transported there, or they're being advertised online, exploited online, and then also perhaps tra- um, transported to private locations. Yeah, yeah. And I know there's been a lot of concern on, with online, with a lot of more children being online during the pandemic as well, and what that's the thing. So are, are we also an increase in, in um, child exploitation when it comes to the, 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 the sexual exploitation area? 
Yes. So um, it, for child, for children victims in general, we saw an increase reported to the helpline in 2020, um, which was disturbing. But it's just as you said, um, of those child victims, most minors were reported to have been exploited within sexual exploitation. Um, we had 117 minors reported to be exploited, unfortunately, sexually, um, which is very concerning. Um, and then, of course, at the, the other area where we see quite a few minors being exploited is within criminal exploitation, um, which matches, I think, the growing awareness across the country of this phenomenon called county lines um, and, and kind of this idea that um, criminal Gangs or street gangs are sometimes targeting young, oftentimes British, as I mentioned, teenagers, um, and recruiting them into what their drug trafficking, basically. Um, and then you've got kind of young, vulnerable individuals who feel trapped in that situation as well. Yeah, yeah. And I was shocked to see as well the increase in uh, 95% increase in um, exploitation on cannabis farms, for example. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's, it's, as I mentioned, we had uh, the 42% increase in cases, um, and then 10% higher victims overall. Um, but so many, uh, oftentimes we see drugs involved, whether it's a cannabis farm or it's the drug trafficking, as I mentioned. So we had about 150 cases that involved drugs, um, last year. So yes, that's continuing to happen. And then, as I mentioned about, um, 20% of those victims in criminal exploitation were reported to be minors, and that's quite concerning. Um, and again, that's a situation where we're seeing both male and female victims, going back to the gender point. Um, so it's true that um, we see more male victims as a res um, recruited and or reported to us to be exploited criminally, and particularly within drug trafficking. 72% um, of, of those involved in drug um, criminal exploitation were male. However, I think what's important to know is that we're seeing an increase reported for females. So right. again, it's that myth that, oh, it's, it's, it's young boys that are being, um, you know, or young uh, male teenagers that are being recruited into these banks. It's not just. Um, right. We actually saw three times as many female minors reported to us to be involved in criminal exploitation with drugs. So it's really important that we have um, as a community that we're looking out for those signs and indicators and how to protect and safeguard, of course, both genders that might be targeted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what, what really saddens me, Rachel, is how much of a systemic issue this is, you know. Um, you know, I mean, the, the drugs one is a, is, is a perfect example of this because you have people being criminalized on one hand, you know, when they're caught and exploited in and forced into the situation on another one. So you're getting caught in both ways. And I'm left with the question, why aren't we having more enlightened policy around drugs? <laughs> you know? um, there are other countries who take different approaches. I mean, I've, I've, you're probably aware I have a, a home in Portugal. I spent some time there. They have a totally different drugs policy, have had for the last 12 years, and are seeing very different outcomes in terms of health outcomes, first and foremost, but also in terms of criminalization and, you know, um, this type of exploitation. So there are some big questions, I guess, that this data raises to... Um, uh, our policy, um, um, uh, you know, developers at a, at a governmental level, um, and also big questions to captains of industry as well in terms of their supply chains. So, you know, I know the influencing side of things that, you know, on the back of the data is something that Unseen is very focused on as well. What are some of the big questions that are being asked, you know, um, you know, back on the back of the data and what we're seeing? Um, well, just going off what you just said, um, that is an issue that's near and dear to our heart. I've, I've worked in the past with criminal justice as well. 
Um, and I think we're looking at modern slavery um, and as I mentioned, kind of understanding the impact of trauma is so important. And in international law, it's called the non-punishment principle. Yeah. Um, and even within the UK Modern Slavery Act, there is a statutory defense. And the helpline actually add, um, discusses that frequently, especially with those criminal exploitation scenarios. Um, but it, it's it's a, it's a really naughty situation. It can be quite tricky. And um, this is this is one of the areas that I think has been kind of um, discussed and debated right now. Um, right. And, and it's it's difficult to kind of maneuver. Um, you know, oftentimes, yes, while victims can raise the statutory defense and they can say, I was a victim of trafficking, to be honest, some victims won't raise that because um, they don't feel safe to raise that because yeah. while, while they or maybe a, a colleague um, might be currently arrested, the rest of the gang is still at large and their family is still being threatened and they might not be able to quote unquote turn on their exploiters. Um, yeah. And so they don't feel safe. Um, but then at the same time, there's some feedback that perhaps some people are, are claiming that they're victims when they're not. Um, and so how do you basically make sure that it's, it's designed well and protecting those that need the protection? And at the same time, that we can um, rightfully charge and prosecute um, and, and proceed you know, with the criminal justice where we need to. So it's a real complicated area um, and one I think that the, the sector is continuing to look at. The Independent Anti-Slavery Commissioner has done um, a report a good bit of looking at this as well. There's been quite a few kind of discussions. Um, so that's definitely an area to continue watching, I think, and, and looking as far as policy. Um, you mentioned business. Yes, I've seen definitely working with businesses. And <clears throat> I think there's, we believe there's such a role for businesses to play. Um, and, and, and really show leadership. There's some businesses that are really taking a step forward and asserting themselves as leaders in this. Um, and I have lots of respect for them and the way they do that. Frankly, I don't, I say, I don't think it's a matter of if you as, as a person ever sees modern slavery in their professional or personal life. I think it's a matter of when. Mm-hmm. And I think as similarly with or parallel with businesses, you can't fully remove the risk. Um, and so to kind of put your head in the sand and say, oh, we don't have this in our company. We don't have to worry about it. Um, I don't think that's prudent or helpful um, because even, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes workers are exploited outside the workplace. But then you've got procurement, you've got supply chain, you've got things beyond just your own warehouse, so to speak. And, and making sure you've got robust um ways to identify risk and mitigate those and a plan to how to respond if indeed you do encounter it is so important. Yeah. Um, in addition to being transparent about what you're doing with your consumer base. Um, and we're seeing an increased movement in that, which I think is really important. Sure. Other uses for the data, I think we hope that our helpline data anyway will be fed into and useful for prevention. Uh, you know, if we're trying to look at what are the push-pull factors, what are the vulnerabilities upon which per, um, perpetrators um, prey and exploit, um, and if we could reduce those vulnerabilities or perhaps um, watch individuals with those vulnerabilities, um, perhaps we could prevent exploitation in the first place, and I think that's really important. That's one of the reasons I kind of talk on and on about myths, because I think if there's a misconception, we're looking in the wrong place, and yep. then our response is unfortunately not well-informed. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it, it's shocking and it's, it's it's saddening how, you know, ideology around some things is we're preventing us looking at what the data is suggesting and really taking, you know, brave policy decisions uh, in some of these areas, you know. Yeah. Indeed. And, yeah. and I think there's, there is lots of data out there. Um, while we always need more data and we're doing, I'm trying to do our part to share what we can. 
Um, there is a lot of information from which we can draw, I think, when we form our responses as a sector in a country. Um, definitely from the NGO sector, from those working directly with survivors, as well as what um, the police are saying, what are we seeing um, in our criminal stats, um, as well as um, what are the stats from individuals that go through um, the government-funded system and kind of what we learn from that demographic. Yeah. Great. So, Rachel, just for ordinary people on the ground, I mean, what what can people start to kind of look out for, right? Because you said, you know, Unseen, it's a great name for the organization because a lot of this stuff people don't see, although it's in plain sight, right? right, right. Uh, so what, what would you suggest that people look for? And, and so, you know, maybe can we can help with reporting. But also, what type of questions do you think um, people should be asking their uh, local representatives because a lot of this has to change at a policy level as well, right, in terms of the, the context and the systemic change we need to see. Yeah? Definitely. Um, so a few indicators. Um, first of all, for anybody that wants, we do have a Spot the Science page on our website if it's helpful to kind of, if you want to read through some of this. Um, so generally, the kind of essence, of course, of modern slavery is that an individual is not in control of, of their own choices. Um or someone is monitoring them and kind of coercing them to do a work or service for them. And so the way you see that from the outside can vary quite a lot, in part because the, the ways modern slavery can occur are really quite varied. Um, but in general, if you've got someone who it looks like someone is escorting them or monitoring them, maybe speaking for them, even, even pretending to be a translator, which can happen, and it looks like the, the individual that might be a victim isn't able to speak for themselves or make their own choices or they're, as I mentioned, kind of being followed and monitored. And keeping in mind that that monitoring can happen electronically as well, um, particularly with teenagers who might be getting kind of instructions via their mobile phone. It's a, it's a big piece of it as well. Um, but moving on from that relationship kind of with the exploiter, um, if it's a situation of labor exploitation, we might be looking at whether workers are escorted or transported to work, um, sure. sometimes in a group, sometimes in the back of a van that's not a passenger van, and then picked up from work. Um, so it looks like they're not coming and going freely, and they might be living in an accommodation that's really subpar that might be provided by the land, by the um, employer or by their exploiter. And oftentimes their living accommodations will be overcrowded. There won't be proper electricity, of course, or running water. Um, and that can be a real dangerous situation as well for the workers who are living in those accommodations. Um, when they're at work, sometimes, oftentimes the victims aren't properly trained. They might not have their proper health and safety equipment. Um, and so you might be able to observe this again from the outside. Um, there could be clear signs of labor abuse. They could be shouted at. We've, we've had reports of employers striking or punching their workers. So, so these things you could see clearly. Um, they might be working long hours. If you see someone living on site at a car wash or construction site, that's clearly a big red sign. Um, kind of moving on from labor a little bit. Um, for situations of domestic servitude, as you mentioned, um, if you notice someone that's working within a residence and they don't ever seem to leave or come and go on their own or um, take holiday, um, that, those are all possibly concerns. Maybe you just haven't noticed, but that could be a bit concerning. Or if you, again, notice that relationship between um, the employer and the employee um, or perhaps the potential victim, you notice that perhaps they're not treated as equals. Um then you begin to get a flavor for whether there could be something more sinister going on than what it's presented to be or reported to be. Um, and then with criminal exploitation, there's there's lots of different indicators, especially with children. Um, we would say look out for children that might um, go missing, even short-term or longer-term overnight stays that aren't explained. Um, of course, new fancy sneakers or or, or sometimes recruit um, individuals that are recruiting victims 
um, particularly young ones might give them gifts and kind of make them feel a part of a gang and at the beginning. So kind of new friends that you don't know about um, and suddenly new gifts. Um, and then that might turn quite quickly. And then you might see signs of um, physical abuse. Their mood could change as they become controlled. Um, and, and again, it's going to be difficult if, if, if this is sometimes similar to teenage behavior. Um, but <laughs> um, oftentimes, actually, you know, um, when you're watching those either in school or you're watching your friends or you're watching your children, you can actually begin to detect this is a bit different. And I mentioned, you know, they might be taking controls um, through their mobile phone. Um, so then just making sure. And that you're being really attentive um, and that they've got someone they can talk to if indeed they need a bit of support themselves. That's great. Um, so, so, Rachel, how can people um, understand a little bit more about Unseen? I'm sure a lot of people would be interested in contributing to the charity as well, given the work that you're doing. Phenomenal work. Um, so what's the best way for people to um, be able to, to do that? Sure. Um, so, first of all, our, our website is um, unseenuk.org. Anyone can visit there and get a feel for kind of what we do. Um, Unseen is an organization that clearly runs the Modern Slavery and Exploitation Helpline. You can visit our website as well, which is www.modernslaveryhelpline.org. Um, Unseen also runs a safe house for men and for women and an outreach program. Um, so, so we're definitely offering kind of longer term support to survivors as well. Um, and would love for individuals to either um, participate in fundraisers or volunteers, but also just raising awareness of the issue, telling your family member or friend or coworker that this is happening, that it's happening in the UK, and that we all have a role to play in stopping it. Um, and then being on the lookout for seeing it. As I mentioned, I think it's only a matter of time before you do see it and then call it into the helpline. Please let us know. Um, and don't feel as if you need to definitively be able to say, this is a situation of exploitation. I saw five or six indicators. Um, instead, you know, if something just doesn't feel right, give us a ring and we want to hear what you've seen. It's so important that we've got eyes and ears everywhere because these victims sometimes can't use their own voice and speak for themselves. And it's so important that we um, know this is happening and can raise the alarm when necessary. Great. Well, thank you, Rachel. And I just want to say, you know, from my perspective, this is, um, this is a war on our common humanity. Um, yeah. I think it's really important that we, we come together as a, a common humanity to, to fight against it. Um, so I'm really honor the work that you and all the team at Unseen, particularly the team on the Modern Slavery Helpline are doing on the front lines to raise awareness, but also to be able to directly intervene in situations where, where people are at risk and uh, give them the support that they need to hopefully get themselves out of those situations. Uh, I think there's also much bigger questions that are raised at a policy level. And, um, you know, these are systemic issues. Uh, within our society and so we need to really take responsibility look at the data and think about how we want to craft and create a different type of society going forward um, because we're, we're not going to see change just on the basis of intervening on what's happening we have to make some systemic changes at, at that policy level as well um, but thank you thank you so much again Rachel uh, yes. see you and uh, keep up the great work <laughs> uh, thank you thank you it's a privilege indeed and it's been really wonderful to share a little bit about what I'm quite passionate about as well so thank you Mama, yeah. Mama, yeah.